Hi everyone. Before we get into this episode, we want to briefly talk about what's going on right now in our country, specifically systematic racism and oppression that has occurred for hundreds of years. Some might ask, why is a public health podcast talking about this? Why can't we stay in our lane and just keep talking about COVID-19 and health delivery? Well, this is our lane. We've spoken a lot about social determinants of health, which is a huge portion in public health. To provide a refresher, social determinants of health is defined as conditions in the places where people live, learn, work, and play that affect a wide range of health risks and outcomes. Hence, racism is a social determinant of health. Systematic racism as a cause of numerous health problems should and will be the primary subject of their own episode. However, just to take a few recent examples, Health outcomes for those with COVID-19 are reported to be far worse for Black Americans. Back in April, CDC revealed that 30% of COVID-19 patients are African Americans, even if they only make up 13% of the population. Mass incarceration destroys family units and lessens people's abilities to obtain a job, potentially locking them out of income, insurance, and perpetuating the racial wealth and opportunity gap. So as people in public health, we cannot ignore this. We cannot do public health without listening to members of our community when they are hurting. And we will keep talking on here and fighting inequities because we will never achieve any of our health goals without addressing the big elephants in the room, racism. In future weeks, we will have episodes specifically addressing the damages that these attitudes have towards mental health mental, physical, and community health from the perspective of people who have lived this experience. All right, so here's this episode. Welcome back to From the Front Row, brought to you by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. I'm Oge Chivo. And I'm Ian Bukta. If this is your first time with us, welcome. We're a student-run podcast that tackles issues in public health. Hey, Oge, what are we talking about today? Well, we're talking about health equity for refugees with the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestinian Refugees in the Near East. People are being displaced around the globe more and more because of unrest, economic opportunities, and war, which will only intensify as the global population grows and climate change continues. So, to understand how to best care for displaced people, we sat down with a member of an organization that has been doing it for years. According to their website, they provide protection and assistance to around 5.6 million people and is an agency of the United Nations. They also provide healthcare to refugees who need it. And healthcare is what brings our guest, Dr. Akihira Setha, to this podcast. Dr. Setha is the director of the health department at ANRA, as people call it, and is an advocate for mental health issues and a leader in health reform around the world. Steve Sonia and I sat down to talk to Dr. Seda to talk about ANRA, what they do, and Dr. Seda's own experiences in public health. Though I do wanna note two quick things before we jump into this interview. We recorded this interview back in February, and that's before, of course, COVID had fully emerged. So, I just want to note that when we are talking about COVID or when he's, if you notice that he's not really mentioning it as a major issue and in, for the fact that we're actually in the same room as him, all of those things would have been affected by COVID. Uh, of course, they would all have been changed, but we did record this in February before COVID 
had really emerged as a major issue in the minds of policymakers and had shut down countries. The second note I want to make is that we did have a bit of microphone trouble. Uh, so if the audio is a bit rocky, I'm so, so sorry about that. But you should still listen to this interview because one, Dr. Seda's inter uh, microphone was just fine and he does most of the talking. And he had some great stories and some great information. All right, here is our interview. Uh, Dr. Saita, welcome to our show. Can you uh, kind of state your position and give us some background into yeah. how you ended up where you are now? Okay, so my name is Akihiro Saita. I'm the Director of Health for the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees. So it's a pretty long name, UNRWR, and we often call it UNRWA. So allow me to say it UNRWA, yep. And then the, so I'm the head of the health of UNRWA. UNRWA was established in 1949. After the 1948, when the state of Israel established and the people who used to live in the historical Palestine left because of this conflict at the time of the independence by uh, the Israel. And then the United Nations established UNRWA 1949 mm -hmm. to provide the care for those Palestinian refugees who fled to the, from the historical Palestine to the neighboring places like Gaza, West Bank, Jordan, Lebanon, and Syria. And then the UNRWA started operating to support to these people from 1950. And then now that uh, after 72, three years, that they will, they're still uh, in the refugee state foot, and the UNRWA continue to provide uh, services. And the two major services, one is education. It's a school of 700 schools of half million students. It's quite a big because that the Palestinian refugees, is, uh, uh, they are the descendant from the original refugees. And then now it's 5.6 million people registered for UNRWA as a Palestinian refugees, which is, I understood that almost double of the people of the Iowa, correct? Yeah. <laughs> so it's quite big. So the 700 schools, half million students. And uh, for the health-wise, we provide the primary health care only, clinics only, no hospitals. And 140 plus clinics with the 3,500 uh, staff. And we have around 3 million people coming every year with almost a, a 9 to 10 visits because some people that comes twice or three times. So, so that's what I'm going to do. So my job is to make sure that these primary health care will be provided in high quality and high uh, efficiency to the people we serve, which is Palestinian refugees. With that side of things, with the quality and everything, like mm. that, is that a, an issue? Because I know in the state sides, um, sometimes we focus a lot on quality, on access, and on cost. Mm -hmm. How are you focused on the quality assurance when you're talking about these yeah. types so, of people? Sure, yeah. sure. Because primary health care is the front line of the any health services, so the quality is most important. Mm -hmm. And what we did for quality improvement is that uh, if I ask you uh, what is the main cause of death among Palestinian refugees, and many people answer this is okay, infectious diseases, pneumonia, diarrhea, or the pregnancy-related ones, either the pregnancy or delivery. Mm -hmm. The answer is no. The main cause of death on the refugees, Palestinian refugees, is non-communicable diseases. Really? Yeah, diabetes, high blood pressure, cardiovascular, cancer, and the tobacco-related lung disease. And this accounts probably 70 to 80% of cause of death. And uh, this is a very unique feature of the refugee health at large in the 21st century. If you see the last century that the refugee health is primarily infectious diseases and the pregnancy babies, but it's not anymore. And the one big reason is that uh, where that the refugee comes from now, uh, Palestine, Syria, Iraq, mm -hmm. these are middle-income countries. 
It is a middle-income country. In the middle-income countries, that the infectious diseases are well controlled to a large extent, while that the non-communicable disease expanded. And the one big reason for the non-communicable disease high is that the poverty. And I'm sure it's the same in the United States. The uh, the more poverty, the higher the non-communicable mm-hmm. disease. Is right. that correct? Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah, right. And exactly the same reason that the access to the healthy lifestyle is limited. Access to the healthy food, access to exercise is limited, so because they become non-communicable disease. So to address this is our main problem. So to address the non-communicable diseases, what we did is two, two major things. One is that the introduction of the family medicine approach, mm-hmm. which is to say that we, we put, the, say, uh, say if, we, if we have a health center with three doctors, we divided the population by three. It's like a UK system, United Kingdom system. So whenever the person goes to health center, they see the same doctor, coupled with the nurse and midwife, we call it family health team. So that's the one part. The second part is that because non-communicable is very uh, prominent, that we introduce electronic medical records, e-health. And because it will allow us to con- make the continuity of care, but also the continuity, uh, uh, continuous monitoring. Because mm-hmm. diabetes, high blood pressure is lifelong. So the paper-based uh, record is uh, impossible to measure the outcome. Say like uh, outcome-wise that uh, how regular they are coming, mm-hmm. compliance, and how many of them are controlled. Say diabetes, how many of them are under hemoglobin A1C or high blood pressure under 1490. That kind of things is not possible to do in the paper-based one. So this we did too. And to do so that we start training our doctors for the family medicine. So, did, so by doing this, we try to in, improve the quality of the services in, with a special focus on non-communicable diseases. Is there a worry with that? When you're talking about mobile health service, right, and monitoring, you know, I don't know what the, the technological infrastructure is like in your, for here, it's definitely a problem for a lot of people. A lot of people have reliable access to internet. Expanding those services can be tremendously difficult. How are you able to overcome that in this situation? Mm-hmm. Okay, so historically, uh, we, as I said, we have five fields of operations. Mm-hmm. Gaza, West Bank, these are both in Palestine, Jordan, Lebanon, and Syria. And in each place, we have 20 to 30 health clinics. It's a stable health station health clinic. So that this is a, a health center is open in the area where there are lots of refugees are there. And then we still have uh, more than 60 refugee camps. And so within the camps that we have health clinics. Mm-hmm. But the council is not in a tent and something like this. It's after 70 years. So it's a semi-urban setting. Okay. And then so we have a health center. So access is uh, ensure that the, uh, in principle that you know, by putting health centers there. And in some places like uh, West Bank and then Syria, and to some extent Lebanon, but the Syria and the West Bank, uh, because of access is sometimes compromised. In West Bank, because of this occupation, because of the checkpoint, that uh, people may not be able to move freely whenever needed. So we establish a health point where it opens, say, like, uh, it's like this. One team of doctor, nurse, uh, uh, and the pharmacist move to the three health points uh, in a week. So this health point opens two days a week, two days a w- oh, sorry, two days a week, two days a week, and one day, so- something like this. And in case of Syria, that they really go. Uh, because of this access issue of the uh, conflict and war. Mm-hmm. And then so some area in the southern part of Damascus, they go once a week. And, and if the security situation improves once a week, if it's better twice a week, it depends on the situation. It's like uh, they go as a convoy. With uh, Sometimes uh, we have a mobile dental 
micro pass with a dental seat. Go there once a week, twice a week, so they go there. So try to address the access as much as possible, but they, it's compromised because of security. Yeah. So going and going back to uh, UNRWA as a whole, what is the kind of key focus and goals you know, now that we're in 2020, what are we headed towards the organization? So as I said that we introduced family medicine and the electrical medical records to address non-communicable disease. That's will continue the main issue. The other focus we are now doing is mental health. And I don't think we, I need to explain to you why mental health is a problem, yeah, right? Yeah. It is a problem. And then we introduced that the WHO established a mental health global action plan, abbreviation of which is MHGAP. Uh, and then that we are training, we train almost all the health center staff for the MHGAP to introduce this. This is to, not to say that all the mental health issues, but the limited ones, uh, primarily the psychosocial support whenever they come. And if they truly need clinical care for the mental health, we do the depression and then that uh, stress. Mm-hmm. And uh, our doctors will prescribe antidepressants, like fluoxetine or Prozac. And to do it. So these are the ways to do it. So for the Palestine refugees, health in the 21st century is NCD. So that's our main focus to how to address NCD. And the, with the help of the electronic medical records and then continuous education. And then now that the NCD will include the mental health. Huh? And what's something about refu- like refugee health that you think everyone should know? The, I think the uh, first thing I really would like people to know is, as I said, the disease pattern changed in the 21st century, particularly in the Middle East. And then that uh, it is not the diarrhea. And, uh, of course, diarrhea, infectious disease is important. There, 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 no question about this. But if you really see of the, uh, the refugee health, it's NCD, diabetes. Say, like, uh, you know that diabetes, we have a type 1 and type 2, and type 1 is wholly dependent on the insulin injection, right? Mm-hmm. Then you can imagine that if you are the 16 years old boy, type 1 uh, in, uh, diabetes, and the crossing border from Syria to a neighboring country because of, to save the, his or her family's life, then uh, if there's no insulin, what is the real problem? I, I think when I ask the expert, sorry, I could be wrong, but when I ask the expert that if you lack of insulin for two weeks, the guy will develop ketoacidosis and then the life threat. So that's kind of, it's, a, it's actually the people think that the diabetes is a chronic one, so nobody dies quickly, and that is not the entire wrong. But in the case I exam- uh, said is that it's an acute life threatening condition. So same, and same for the cardiovascular high, high blood pressure. And of course, that in the refugee is the most vulnerable, so the stress is high, and so I think that is also the important thing. So, uh, what people, uh, what I want the people to know first is that the NCD is a problem, mm-hmm. and the second is that the care the NCD is not always easy, challenging, and uh, our refugees are more stable, 72 years, but the Syrian refugees or Iraqi refugees they move around. Now how to make sure the continuity of the care for the NCD is the most important part. Eh? It's interesting that you make the point that. You know, things like diabetes that mm. we consider to be chronic mm. here in mm. the United States are not chronic diseases because if we aren't treating them, then they aren't chronic. Yeah. They become yeah. acute and it can kill people. Yeah. That's a really good point. Yeah, I think, say, like, uh, if we see the United States, I'm not the expert the U.S., obviously, <laughs> but if the immigrants, whatever the legal status, uh, they're crossing from the south to the U.S., and some of the young, younger, right? You know, when I, yeah. As far as I see the news. And then that the, there could be the diabetes person there. And how to make sure that I think it's a problem. And uh, in, in this state of Iowa, if you check the immigrants uh, from Mexico and the southern part of uh, Latin America, I'm, I, 
I could be totally wrong, but I won't be surprised if I'm uh, correct that uh, NCD or chronic condition is a problem among oh. them. So someone I know very well uh, actually with, with these populations and her work is basically, um, you know, when you're delivering mm-hmm. healthcare, mm-hmm. you know, how do you track yeah. down people who have to effectively, you know, live yeah. off the grid to not be found because they're trying to work and of course they're trying to be deported sure, at sure, the same sure. time? Um, by by the government yeah. and so how do you get medication yeah. into their hands so in in this regard that if i extend that the one big challenge to the world for refugee health is that ncd medication chronic condition medication are very expensive it's really expensive and then that for insulin we, we got a very good price internationally it's a 2.3 dollars per buyer we don't use analog we use a human but it's okay mm-hmm. but uh, i think uh, it's it's extraordinarily expensive the ncd medicines the high blood pressure medicine and then that uh, you know that the hemoglobin a1c test mm-hmm. uh, for us it's three dollars 3.5 dollars per test so the, I, let me share one example. I used to work for tuberculosis before joining UNRWA. And then the, the in, when I started tuberculosis like your age, one course of treatment of the six medicines, uh, six months, was uh, more than $100, one course, in any part of the world, at least $100. And then that the, what the world did is one is standardized treatment for the uh, globally standardized this. And then they went to the, uh, they developed the global fund to fight ASTB malaria. <coughs> They did a global pool procurement based on the standardized uh, treatment. So they, they have only two treatments, first time and second time. And then uh, you can e- easily quantify, right? How many first time ones, how many second time And then you can uh, you can buy a bulk. So after this establishment of the global fund, one cost went down less than $20 and now 50, less than $15. And I think for the in the era of NCD, if we can standardize treatment, that is not impossible. And then that's a great help because uh, insulin is, uh, you know, there's only three major companies producing insulin in the world. It's a monopoly. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that uh, technically, uh, uh, I think uh, technically we should be able to have a generic insulin. If so. Yeah. And people die uh, in the United States. Yeah. Um, there's actually a pretty, it's not common, but there is a phenomenon of people right as they hit 26 or the first time they're on basically between their mm-hmm. parents insurance or going from one insurance to another um, and not being able to afford insulin. More mm. people have died in the United States because they've been trying to ration insulin to get okay. through. I think because the, the most important thing I, I learned in UNDA's works is two things. One is that, uh, uh, say, uh, example mental health, that uh, the person can become healthy only when the society they live in is healthy. I think that's what I learned most. And then that it's not because of lack of access to the services, lack of access to quality of the services, they become sick. Of course they do, but the most important, the health society itself is not healthy, like, like high employment and the, of course war and the others, it's not healthy. The second thing is the refugees, even in the Middle East, uh, the, where I work, refugees are the most vulnerable people most weak, weakest uh, uh, segment of the society. <clears throat> and the, what I learned is that the, all the problem of that the society has will accumulate, concentrate to that the weakest one. So if I see the refugees, I could see that what are the problems like Jordan has, what the problem Lebanon has, I can see all the problems in the one, 
Of course, we cannot uh, generalize this because uh, society is so different. I think I think that's an interesting part of refugee health that not only providing the health, but it reflects the society at large where they are. Yeah, they are, yeah. Used to work with oh. uh, folks who had HIV and other injection drug use populations. It was something I did a really long time ago, and I think you really hit talking about you know it is a reflection of where are we putting our focus. In, you know, what are we doing to help uh-huh. those people who are on the stigmatized mm-hmm. things? And then you're right. It's not just about access or throwing money at the problem, but I think it is a, a curative community theology about how are we going to treat people, mm-hmm. how are, what are we going to value mm-hmm. as a no, society. No, I agree. I agree. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, I want to also bring it back to the tuberculosis point that you mm, made mm. earlier, uh, talking about the prices. Mm. Again, I, uh, I used to work as a uh, case manager for maritime ships. And so we had cases of people who would get tuberculosis mm-hmm. and they would be brought to the United States. And I remember, you know, seeing the final bill and it was astronomical, even flying someone back home on an air ambulance because they had oh, okay. know, infectious. Uh, huh? Exactly. It was about, I think, $300,000 minimum for that kind of thing. And so just hearing that price change between those two entities, I mean, it really shows you where should we be putting our emphasis, especially with tuberculosis mm-hmm. as an infectious mm-hmm. disease. Mm-hmm. With your population that you're working with, is there an area that you are most focused on? Is there an area that you feel most personally attached to that you'd like to see fixed? Mm. Yeah, yeah, I think uh, the answer is Gaza and the Syria and then Lebanon, these three places. The reason is that to say like in Jordan, in the West Bank, uh, in Jordan, many of them have a historical reason they have a Jordan citizenship. So that they have access to Jordan National Health Services, which is getting better. Mm-hmm. And the West Bank, they have access to the Palestine Health Services, and which is getting better. And the Gaza, although it is part of the uh, Palestine, but the uh, government service is not getting better. So that that's what we really need to have. So in Gaza and Lebanon and Syria, we are quite often the last resort. If we don't do this, they have no access. So these are the areas that we focus on this. So the, uh, say in Syria, obviously, that the, in the past in Syria, government of Syria treated Palestine refugees very well. They gave off all the same rights except for the uh, voting and the military services. Other than that, they, they, they can go to any health service of Syrians, like Syrians. But now that it is limited, so that we become a last resort. Say, for example, in Gaza, back to Gaza, I can tell you why how it looks like. In Gaza, we have 1.3 million Palestinian refugees. Mm-hmm. And over 1.3 million, 1 million are relying on our food assistance. Oh. Uh, oh, and so which means, and at the beginning, I said 10 years ago, it was less than 100,000. Now it's increased to 1 million. So that's how, how important UNRWA is. In Syria, I think more than 90% of our refugees receive our cash assistance. Because uh, there's no economy, there's no, it's very difficult condition. So I think these are the areas where, where we are needed, we focus on this. Yeah? And then right now, what are you kind of focused on with those strategies to mm-hmm. m- you know manage this refugee crisis that's going on? What are some of the mm-hmm. key areas that you are working on? Yeah. The, as you may know that we are in a financial crisis. Mm-hmm. So UNRWA was established in 1950, started operating in 1950, and our mandate was three years. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so at that time, that the world thought that uh, it should be gone in the three years' time, and then nothing happened. And I don't know how many three years happened. And then right. <laughs> it was extended last uh, uh, December, and there's a United Nations vote, and it was approved. And so from next June, it will be another three years. So that is the one. So 
because of this nature of this one, the first thing is that the UNHCR is different from us. UNHCR was established a couple of months, if not one month after us, and that's specifically only for refugees, but other than that, Palestine refugees, because Palestine refugees are in UNRWA. And then, so we have two refugee stream, and then it goes like this. And then because of this nature that we do, we have to always raise funds, because it's a temporary organization, still three years. So in the United Nations, there's a regular budget, which is based on the country's member states' contribution, pulled at the headquarters in New York, and they distribute to the different UN agencies. Mm -hmm. It's a regular budget, we call it, assessed contribution, which is, say, suppose if we have $100 million, you receive $100 million every year. Mm -hmm. And that's uh, many UN agencies like this, no, but not us. Because of temporary nature, we have to raise our funds. Mm -hmm. And, so, and then, so our annual uh, budget is around $1.1 to $1.2 billion. Mm -hmm. And then the running for the 700 schools, 140 health centers, and some others are around $800 million. So the main difference of three to four hundred million dollars, like project housing and the infrastructure, one-time investment and the food support like this. <coughs> and then that the United States has been the strongest supporter in the past, and they, they always give us around three to four hundred million dollars, say three hundred sixty million dollars. But uh, because of the change of their policy to the Palestine, they, they stopped two thousand eighteen. So we have a uh, three hundred sixty million dollars minus, <coughs> and uh, this situation still continues. Although 2018, many countries, including 40 countries, uh, increased their contribution to UNRWA, because <coughs> it's very simple that, you know, st for the stability of the region, UNRWA is important. Mm -hmm. Just imagine that the 700, so half million students uh, lost the schools and go to the street. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a national security issue because they could be radicalized. Because if youngsters are frustrated, they could be easily radicalized. And we have around a quarter million uh, diabetes hypertension patients if they have no access to the, this also national security issue. And so the many countries gave the money, <coughs> 2018 and 19, but uh, this year it's also very tough because of this uh, largest uh, donor support of the U.S. is now uh, hap no, it's not happening, so financial crisis there. So <coughs> as I said, uh, the running cost is around $800 million. Mm -hmm. And then uh, our financial forecast says we may not be able to get $800 million. And then so the pro our current budgeting is 10% uh, minus. So it's uh, $720 million. So that's very tough how we can cut 10% from the net without affecting the services. <coughs> and so that uh, in the education, that what they're going to do is that they increase the school class size. If you increase the class size, you, ha you need to have less doctor, uh, sorry, less teachers, right? Yeah. Something like that. In the health, that uh, it's not easy to do this. So that we try to uh, minimize uh, any unnecessary expenditures and uh, to make sure we will be able to continue to provide salaries, uh, sorry, services. And so that uh, we may not be able to replace those retired. Uh, we may not be able to replace those who are on leave. So that kind of thing, by doing this, providing service, that's the main main part of how we can make sure to continue the services for the Palestinian refugees. Yeah. Has there ever been, because you're talking about the temporary nature of this program, mm -hmm. has there ever been a push or is there ability to mm -hmm. make it a permanent program and say it's going to be like these other UN programs? Yeah. Where it's <coughs> of it? yeah. I think uh, operation-wise it is not a bad idea, but uh, politically then, which means that we never solve the Palestinian refugee issues. Because right. <laughs> our mandate is, the reason of nature of our mandate is like this, we will continue to provide the service until the just and the last solution comes to the Palestinian refugee issues. Whatever the international community, country like Palestine, is. Israel and the United States agrees. Mm. That's okay, because as far as all the parties agree, it's fine. Uh, but until that time, we have to continue. So if we become permanent, 
which means that there's no way to solve the problem. So that's an, that's actually a big problem. Yeah? And with all this that you're talking mm. about, you know, the issue of budget cuts mm. is, is you know, problematic within the United States and for your organization as a whole. What other sources of funding can you come up with besides stuff from the United Nations? Are you talking with other nonprofits or other entities? Yeah. So uh, at this point, um, last year, 2019, the main donor was uh, Germany. And uh, followed by EU, Sweden, UK, and some uh, European country and Japan. Uh, these are the countries they do. Since the amount of money is big, I think we try to always rely on the major donor countries. But the expanded donor base, uh, say like uh, uh, Malaysia, India, even Afghanistan, they gave us $1 million last year. So expanding this. And private sector is working on this one, and in, including Kenya and Saudi Arabia and others. But uh, we haven't got uh, like... Uh, uh, Melinda and Gates Foundation, Bill Foundation, or that kind of private foundation, we haven't got the money yet. That's what we are working on this. Yeah? Mm. And then looking at this whole situation too, what is kind of this long-term solution that you're working on for refugees? If you are able to have all the funding or do, you know, all the money in the world wasn't an issue kind of thing, what would you be looking to do first and foremost for these folks? For as far as health services are concerned, make it st- stabilize. Stabilize means that the, how many doctors we need and how many medicines we need. Uh, next year, uh, we want to do this this year, but uh, because of financial crisis, uh, this is in, still in a survival mode. But once it gets over, that, uh, then make it stable. And our service is stable. You, you know, 70 years ago, we started this. And if you go to ar- look around the world, uh, which countries exist 70 years ago? It's a changing world. <laughs> changing world. Sure. So that, uh, doing this for 70 years itself is uh, fantastic. And uh, quite a uh, committed person. I say that we have uh, 140 health centers. It's 3,500 schools, right? Mm-hmm. And we have uh, 700 schools with a half million students. And as a whole, UNRWA has uh, 32,000 st- staff. Mm-hmm. Big. And uh, all of them Palestinian refugees. All of them are Palestinian. So that I, as far as health uh, is concerned, I have never seen such hard-working people in the developing country public sector. I think it's simply because they serve their own people, so they continue to work. Because I'm Palestinian refugees, and my patient Palestinian refugees, we came from the same uh, situation, we live in the same world, so that they continue to serve. I think with this strength, I think we will be able to continue the service, but make sure that uh, in the changing world, that, that how to come. And uh, one important, one interesting thing I learned a lot is that uh, we define the, their salary by ourselves. And the salary is very important. And uh, in the global health or universal health coverage or universal health financing, we quite often don't discuss the salaries. Because the salaries, I, I don't know in the United States, but in many places, it's defined by the Minister of Labor, public servants. It's not you know, even Minister of Health uh, that decides the salary of the doctors or payment of doctors. And then that the, actually that is the biggest part of the expenditure. So education is 95% of salaries. Mm-hmm. Oh, excellent. Health, I think, for us, is 60% salaries, and the 20% for the medicine, 20% hospital payment, because we send some patients to the hospital. And so I think that kind of thing is very important for us. And that, in that sense, it's a very rewarding, interesting job. It's a really interesting job. 
If you love operations, that's the best job in the world. <laughs> <laughs> that's a really good breakdown of everything. Because right now I'm going uh, through what are our biggest budgets. Just like you mentioned, education and medical. Because they are right neck and neck. The most and uh, uh, both of them will continue to increase either we like it or not. And then there's no choice. Oh. It is definitely, you know, foundations of health and foundations of growth for a country, you know, investing in its yeah, people. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but, uh, for health, uh, people get uh, people st- living longer, mm-hmm. which means more con- chronic conditions. Mm-hmm. And the unit price of medicine continues to increase. And the price of uh, expenditure, uh, sorry, the investigate, uh, investigation or examination increase. So, uh. so do you have any last thoughts on anything related to um, this conversation we're having about refugees before yeah. we kind of move on? Yeah, sure. For firstly, that uh, like uh, many people think uh, refugee is something that not their own problem. It's very far, mm-hmm. and uh, that is not wrong because at the particular, if you live in the big country like U.S., unless you see them, it's, you don't care. But uh, say like in the U.S., that many immigrants are displaced, and they some of them are refugees. And it is uh, I really would like to say that you know yeah, it's true that you know refugees is not our day-to-day problem, but. Uh, if I see the world that uh, we are by chance not a refugee, I say I'm Japanese, I born in Japan by chance. And then that uh, I have no chance, uh, no uh, history of refugee in my family. But uh, who knows tomorrow? I think that's very important for us to remember in changing world. Even the strongest country in the world, the United States, uh, I think we are all are always vulnerable to the change. I think that's the important thing to remember. And second thing is that uh, if we see the global health, it's largely driven by the politics nowadays. So people become ill because of politics, and the refugee dies because of bad politics. It's not because of lack of health services. Mm-hmm. It's bad. And it's important to see the refugee status, see how the politics moves, to understand the politics. And then I think that's the important area that the global health have to address. Although we are not politicians, so we don't run the politics, but uh, the health diplomacy, so to speak, is very important to make sure that the people in the world remain healthy. I think that's also very important about refugees. And the thirdly, anyway, refugees are not in number. They're individual, and some of them are truly fantastic. It's uh, truly fantastic people. There are many good people in refugees who become the, you know, you have many people who are, uh, ex-refugees in the United States, right? Mm-hmm. So I think it is happening all, everywhere in the world, and I think it's uh, good to get in touch with them, to learn from them. Yeah. So can you talk about your own history and career pro- progression? Okay. So when I was young, uh, uh, medical school, in the con- very countryside, I, I was born in 1961, so, and then that uh, when I was a medical student around 2021, you know both people? Have you ever heard of both people? I uh, say like uh, you had a war in Vietnam, right? Yeah. Uh, and after the war in the Vietnam, that uh, there's a conflict, a sort of confusion in the uh, Southeast Asia, mm-hmm. and the civil war between the Vietnam and Cambodia and all the other things. So people left their country as a refugee uh, by using boat because it's on the sea. Mm-hmm. So we went to everywhere, mm-hmm. and uh, some of them came to Japan, and all, all the way up or down. And I felt that who they are, and then that they came uh, with a boat to Japan. So I felt that uh, I, I want to do something for them in the future. And then that after graduation, that uh, when the, uh, when I graduated, that we have the uh, in those days that there's no good rotation. Then I want to do the rotation on internal medicine, surgery, pediatrics, and then OBGYN. But there's no such system except for the only two hospitals in Japan. And one of them is a United States Navy hospital. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> in near Tokyo. It's a seven street headquarters. And I went there because they have rotations. And then we, I, well, after I finished this one, I was looking for a job. And then that the uh, tuberculosis institute, I sent a letter to many, many places. And the tuberculosis institute got me. And they said, there's a job for you, can you come? And I went to the interview and then I got the job. And then uh, at the institute, uh, I did uh, some clinical work of chest medicine a couple of years. And then that after that, there's a Japanese government uh, tuberculosis project in Yemen. Oh, and I went there uh, at the age of 30, something, stayed two three, uh, two, three years. And after that, uh, I joined WHO and then continued to do this. And 10 years ago, that my boss said, uh, do you want to go to Kenya? My boss told me that you should go to UNRWA as director of health, I said. I have no idea what to do because <laughs> <laughs> I do in tuberculosis, malaria, and uh, UNRWA, as I said, it does everything, uh, everything primary health care. And uh, but uh, I had a good impression of UNRWA in my previous work because they had working health center. Whenever I went to the health center, they're working hard. So I said, okay. And it's also the bureaucratic wise uh, promotion. Mm. Uh, and I said, fine. And then somebody told me you should never say no to promotion. I said, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I said, fine, okay. And then went there. Then I'm doing this. So I was not origin. I was interested in refugee at the beginning, but I was not originally doing refugee humanitarian. And then, but uh, then came to the refugee work in the last ten nine years. And then I think, but uh, working in tuberculosis helped me a lot. Oh, uh, uh, say tuberculosis care is somehow like established program. It's a global standard how to t- uh, diagnose, treat, and report, and monitor. It's, uh, and uh, this experience helped me a lot. And then, f- say, for example, diabetes, hypertension care, it is not globally standardized how to diagnose. It's uh, American Diabetes Association, European Diabetes Association. And they say, for example, use of analog insulin is uh, widely common here, mm-hmm. but the WHO is not recommending as a first choice. Human is okay. Use of hemoglobin A1C. It's here, it's in the four times a year. But in the WHO says twice is okay. And it's not a world standardized. So that kind of thing is happening. So to put the standardization is very good for the family medicine, the NCD care for me. So I think that helps me a lot. Yeah. And then I have a proof for the white TB is good. You know Jim Kim, the World Bank president? He was doing the MDR TB, because I know him well. And you know Tom Friedan? The mm-hmm. uh, previous uh, the director of CDC. He was a WHO TB officer in India. <laughs> you got good company with it all. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I think, uh, but the experience, I think, uh, experience of that, uh, that the TB care help a lot. Mm-hmm. Mm, yeah. Well, first, thank you for sharing, <laughs> sharing that background. A really interesting uh, story and, like, life path. Yeah. But how can, just from all of that experience, how can public health be better about promoting our message? Uh, I think one is that, uh, of course, uh, they deliver the results. If you deliver the results, it will become better. Say, like, if the current coronavirus or COVID-19, if we control well, people say, oh, what, we are doing a great job. If not, I think. Because uh, uh, in public health, people get attention primarily for the infectious diseases. And the infectious disease is black and white. If you control, win. If you don't control, lose. I think that's uh, deliver the result is one thing. But the second part is that uh, put more human story. I think there's a fantastic story. I think uh, what I learned is that in, in when I was doing tuberculosis, mm-hmm. our common message is that we have 2 million people dying every year for TB mm-hmm. in the world. And if we translate it into a simplistic way, it is like a two jumbo jet crash a day, uh, number-wise. A lot of people. Lots of people. people. But uh, still, 
then at the end of the day, what I learned, people, it, it didn't always ring the bell of people. If I say two million people die, some people say, it's, is it big or small? Because people have no idea how many people die in the world every day or every year or every month. And so that's, uh, and then, but then I realized that when I put the human story and then uh, bring the tears or the eyes or the, you know, break the heart, because uh, I think only the human heart can break the other human's heart. And so th- I think that's important for us to raise uh, more human stories, how important it is. And after that, we put the numbers and ask the money. Yeah? The third thing is that the more global network, global standardization, like the story of the TB, if we can bring $100 treatment cost to $15, it could be done for the other conditions. I think then we should be able to do this. I think that's the three things I learned from the public health, mm, and it's a very important part. So what is one thing outside the field of public health that you've been thinking about? Most important, interesting part uh, is uh, politics, but uh, it's a uh, say the question comes: uh, Is it outside public health or inside public health? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, for me, it is inside public health. At least it's not outside. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it's important to say that you know, if you don't think about uh, politics, uh, I think uh, we are not good in public health. Say like you're in the states. That uh, I apologize if I'm totally wrong, but health insurance is a political problem. Mm-hmm. in the United States. Right? It's not, it is a poli- public health issue, but it's, a, it's basically a political problem. How to realize universal health insurance or not in, in the United States is politics. And uh, I think that kind of things, or how to solve the Palestinian refugee issues, health issues, it's a politics. I think it's, it's always important to understand for me, interest in, uh, in, the, in the politics, to read the newspaper and talk to the people and understand how people understand. Yeah. yeah. Mm. You've gone through this whole big process, right? You're going through your whole career. What is one thing that you thought you knew, but then later realized that you were wrong about during your journey? Oh, let me think. It doesn't mean that, you know, I did uh, nothing wrong. I did many wrong <laughs> things. <laughs> the one thing I did wrong... Uh, okay, let me give you one story. Yep. Sure. Uh, when I was doing tuberculosis, and in the early days, that uh, then once that the, the standardized treatment came in, and then as I said, there are two treatments. One is for that uh, first time, the second is uh, uh, other one, second time treatment. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, even in those days that we have a multi-drug resistance tuberculosis, we knew it in a small number. But as a public health, uh, I thought that this is not the priority. Uh, because that if we find the 80%, 70, 80% of existing cases, which are usually drug sensitive, mm-hmm. number-wise, number-wise, and then that they remain uh, treating uh, multi-drug resistance later, this is fine. Because uh, it is not entirely technically wrong because that the multi-drug resistance TB is basically man-made. Uh, we don't diagnose correctly, we don't treat correctly, and so that uh, they become, and it's our, our fault, not the patient's fault. Uh, but uh, because of it, it is very expensive, the medicine is extraordinarily expensive in those days, and it's so complex. Even if we use the medicine well, that the cure rate could be 50-60%, not uh, may not reach higher. So we, we gave it, uh, at least I gave it the uh, uh, last uh, option. Uh, first is uh, new cases, second is second time, and uh, whenever we establish this, and then that uh, there's a one person in the world who taught me I'm totally wrong, mm. which is Jim Kim. <laughs> 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 uh, 
And then that、uh, I think that is a major breakthrough to me. What he said is like this. He said that he was taking care of the MDR TB patient in Peru, if you see his history, and the partner in health in the Harvard,、mm-hmm. together with Paul Farmer. And then that, uh, he is treating the TB patient, MDR TB patient in Peru, and in the conference, he brought them、uh, and t e l l them that、uh, I don't care, you say, like, I don't care your one million patients, I don't care your two million patients, I care my patients, give、mm-hmm. medicine to them. And then that.、Uh, It's, it's a sort of you know, breaking down, but、uh, of course, eth- ethically, we can't say that no, I don't care your patient, right? right. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a very good tactic, but also tools in it.、Eh? We really have to save the patient. So, what he did is that、uh, he brought all the people in the world and also the ad-、uh, activists in the world to treat them. But also, he did fantastically bring the other pharmaceutical companies, the global network. To bring that、uh, uh, second line, we call second line medicine for MDR TB down, price down. So that's what he did. And that's,、uh, I think,、uh, the biggest lesson I learned. And、uh, it's it somehow the, what、uh, Jim Kim and、uh, Paul Farmer did was a new public health approach,、mm-hmm. which is say that,、uh, say, my patient, I don't care your two million patients.、Uh, if, if I care my patient, that's a success, if not a failure. And then if you, you, you're doing HIV before, right? If you know the history of HIV case, it's very interesting because in the 80s, when the antiretroviral came in, 90s, there's a very serious discussion in the United States that it's not ethical to give antiretroviral medicine to Africa because they cannot use it.、Mm-hmm. And then the, it was not a rare notion in the HIV care world. The only thing s、uh, w h e n it changed is that,、uh, you, you know, the Global AIDS Conference, the big one, very interesting one. And in early days, that the HIV, people living with the HIV occupied the podium with the opening, closing, and just、uh, shouting that I don't want to die. Give me medicine. And in those days, the antiretroviral, many of them are new and coming into the market. So they say, I need this medicine. I don't want to give me medicine. And nobody could say, You, you can die. And also,、uh, you should not say like this. And then they changed the entire notion. So I think that's.、Uh, say I, I'm、uh, from the very classical public health school, which is、uh, if we find a majority of people and cure majority of people, it's good for the community. And then, but、uh, that is good,、uh, say, like、uh, modeling of the infectious disease. That's the way to reduce the infection, right?、Mm-hmm. However, that,、uh, that could leave the most vulnerable people out. Say, like MDR TB, sorry, but we have no medicine. You cannot do anything, you, you may suffer. But that, that is not、uh, modern public care, so that's what I learned most.、Yeah. So that's the end of the interview. Thank you again to Dr. Sita for coming on to the pod.、Um, in this episode, I really enjoyed the fact that he spoke about chronic conditions. I, I mean, while also highlighting the impact of infectious diseases, but talking about how, well, most people, in, in as much as we think i s infectious diseases that really affect、um, refugee health, there are a lot of Underlying chronic conditions that, if、um, assessed or if provided with like proper healthcare access in the beginning, could 
all be avoided, but since it's not, and with the assumptions that we hold, people still end up with these adverse health effects and end up dying from chronic health, um, chronic health conditions. But Ian, what did you think about it? One thing I thought that was really interesting is that, you know, as he was talking about uh, things that we would label as chronic here in the United States, you know, diabetes, we can treat that chronically. In places where they have a chronic underfunding of healthcare and a lack of insurance, you know, in, in communities, uh, you know, even in, within the United States, but definitely abroad as well, those aren't really chronic conditions anymore. They're non-communicable, but they're not really chronic in the sense that if you don't get treated for a diabetes, it becomes an acute condition in which you can die. And so I think it's really important to think about how historically we've chronically underfunded or underprovided healthcare and what groups have been delivered less healthcare than they should have been delivered. And, and when we do have these inequities and disparities in who is getting adequate access to healthcare, um, we see things like what you were talking on, uh, talking about at the beginning of this episode. The fact is, you know, if you don't provide healthcare adequately to certain communities, they will die at higher rates from things like COVID-19. And, you know, that is a shame, you know, it's a, it's a shame that our country bears. And it is something that we need to make sure that everyone has adequate access to healthcare. Uh, I, I had two other idea, uh, two other notes. Uh, first, the war, we are undergoing climate change, and that is going to be a major driver of refugees. So this interview is really interesting to me because as we think about other people who are going to become refugees over the next 30 years as climate change intensifies, this is one of the ways that we can deliver health care to them. Obviously, UNRWA just works with Palestinian refugees, but at least there's a model for how to set up agencies to help deliver healthcare to people who desperately need it, but aren't getting it. And uh, the last thing I want to know is that I just want to note one more time that this interview was recorded before COVID-19. And so again, our discussions of COVID-19 were speculative and we didn't have a chance to call him back up uh, before before record, uh, releasing this episode. So unfortunately we weren't able to tell you about kind of some of the more current news on it, but I think that the interview stands for itself, especially in the long run, mm -hmm. because uh, hopefully humanity will get its act together and we'll, and we'll beat this, this pandemic. All right, so we're out of here. Um, you can find us on Facebook at the University of Iowa College of Public Health. We're on iTunes and Spotify as well as the University of Iowa College of Public Health. Let us know what you thought about this episode and this series at cph-gradambassador at uiowa.edu. That's cph-grandambassador at uiowa.edu. This episode of From the Front Row was hosted by Oge Chibo, Steve Sonier, and Ian Bukta. It was edited and produced by Ian Bukta. Thank you to our guest, Dr. Akihiro Seta, for coming on the pod this week. This podcast is brought to you by the University of Iowa, College of Public Health. All right, guys. So that's the end of our podcast. Stay safe, happy social distancing, and say no to systematic racism. See you guys next week. Tiptoe, tiptoe.
رکوردینگ فور دی پادکست